Many people believe that people are mostly good. If you ask the question, are people mostly good? Most people would say, yes, there are a few bad apples, but overall people are pretty good. But is that idea true? Uh, Is that the conclusion of the scripture? Is that how God views humanity? Well, Paul provides a crystal clear answer to those questions. And to answer those questions, Paul starts, starts off by asking a question. He says, what then, in verse 9, are we any better off? Or another way to translate this, the NIV says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Now, why does Paul ask this question? Who is the we that he is referring to in, these, in this verse? Well, remember, the previous verses, Paul has been addressing the Jew. In the first eight verses, Paul answered some objections that he anticipated from those in the Roman church who came from a Jewish background. And to address those questions, Paul starts in verse 1 by saying, so what advantage does the Jew have? And Paul says, well, considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. The very word of God was given to them. In other words, there's great advantage to being a Jew. But then we come to verse 9, where Paul essentially asks the same question as he does in verse 1, but gives a entirely different answer. In verse 9, he says, what then are we any better off? Are we any better than the Gentile, than the non-Jewish person? And Paul says, not at all, not at all. What is going on? Well, see, in a very real way, there is an advantage for the Jew compared to the Gentile. The Jew had the very word of God. God had revealed himself to them in the scripture. God had made a covenant with them as a people. But at the same time, Paul says, there's also, there's no advantage There's no benefit to being a Jew. Why? Verse 9, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. The Jews and Greeks are all under sin. In other words, when it comes to God's judgment, they are not exempt. God will not give the Jewish person favor. He will not pass on judging them to judge the Gentile. Why? Because like the Gentiles... They are under sin. Just like the Gentile, the non-Jewish person, you are under sin, Paul says. But what does it mean to be under sin? What is Paul getting at here? Well, to be under sin means not only to be a sinner, it means to be a helpless slave to the power of sin. It means to be enslaved to sin, to be under the oppression of sin. It controls you. It masters you. It rules over you. John Stott writes, Paul appears almost to personify sin as a cruel tyrant who holds the human race in prison. William Barclay says, in the Christless state, a man is under the control of sin, helpless to escape from it. It is on top of us. It weighs, it, that weighs us down. It's a crushing burden on our life. It consumes because it also lives in us. Jesus in Mark chapter 7 Talking about sin, verse 21, for from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, he says, come from within, within you. They're under sin. And you think about for a moment, if the Jews are under sin and the Gentiles are under sin, who is not under sin? Answer, nobody. Nobody is not under sin. In other words, every person is under the power of sin, under the enslavement of sin. And this is Paul's point. There's not one person who has existed or whoever will exist that is not under sin, that is not in power, under the power and enslavement 
of sin. In fact, we'll see this in a moment in verses 10 through 18, where Paul uses inclusive terms like all and no one or not even one repeatedly to make his point crystal clear. No person is exempt by God or by, created by God is exempt from being under the power of sin. And as a result, Paul says in verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. What does he mean there's no one righteous? What does it mean to be righteous? Well, uh, what, does it mean, what he means by being righteous here is, that, is to not live up to the standard that God has called us to. That we're not righteous in the sense that we have not lived up to the standard that God has called us to. And what is the standard that God has called all of humanity to? Perfection, perfect obedience. But Paul's point is no one has perfectly obeyed the law. No one has perfectly walked with God. Therefore, we stand in a position where we are guilty and we are condemned before God. Who, who is unrighteous? Who stands before God guilty, condemned, worthy of judgment? Every single person is Paul's point. Everybody. All of humanity is under the power of sin, dead to sin. No one stand, stands righteous before God and above himself or herself. So what is Paul's proof for this charge? What does Paul point to as evidence for the accusation, the charge that he is making against all of humanity, to put all of humanity on this level playing field. Well, verse 10, as it is written. In other words, Paul's proof, what he points to and looks to is the very word of God, scripture. The very thing that the Jews had been given that Paul says, in fact, gives the Jews an advantage the very thing that gives the Jews the advantage is also the proof of their condition before God, the proof that they are under sin, not righteous or in right standing before God, and neither are we. Now, if Paul is pointing to the word of God as evidence of his charge, then who is truly making the assessment? Who's truly making the charge? God. God. This is God's assessment. This is God's charge against humanity. And this is so important for us to see. This is not Paul's opinion. This is God's truth. This is what God says is true about the human condition. The human condition that we are depraved, that we are enslaved to, under the power consumed by sin. And to make this point, what Paul does is he strings together a series of Old Testament quotations. He's quoting the Psalms, he's quoting Ecclesiastes, and he quotes Isaiah, all of which bear witness in different ways to our unrighteousness, all of which expose the depth of our sin, all of which show just how corrupt we are as human beings. Every person. In fact, Warren Wordsby in his, his commentary, he describes his verses as an x-ray study of the lost sinner from head to foot that Paul is looking He's looking at our character, he looks at our conduct, and he looks at the cause. The proof from scripture first, our character. Paul looks at what the word says about our character, who we are. Again, an x-ray, you think about an x-ray, it's penetrating beneath the layers of the body. The surface layers to, to see, to reveal what is beneath. And what Paul does is he uses God's word to get down and to penetrate into our souls, into our heart, into our mind, into our motives and our wills and exposes that we are corrupt, that we are consumed by sin, the very core of who we are. Verse in verse 11, Paul says, there's no one who understands. 
speaking to the mind. Our minds are corrupt. No one who understands. Now, what is Paul saying about no one who understands? Like, you don't understand how you can lose 50 to 100 strands of hair every single day, but still have hair in your head? Is that what he's talking, at least most of us do? <laughs> is that what he's saying? Is he talking about uh, how the pyramids were built? You don't understand how the pyramids were built without heavy machinery? Or why it appears that we're heading towards another Biden-Trump election? God help us. Like, is that what he's talking about? No. What Paul is referring to, what he's saying you don't understand, is truth righteousness, who you are, who God is. You don't understand the depth of God, the character of God, the depth of your own depravity, what it means to be human, to be what evil is, where it comes from. I saw this uh, interview this week by uh, Megan Rapinoe, if you're familiar with her, she's a played for the women's U.S. soccer team, and she was playing in apparently her last game, and six minutes into the game, her Achilles ruptures, and she tears her Achilles tendon. And afterwards, she's in a press conference, and she says, I'm not a religious person or anything, and if there was a God, like, this is proof that there isn't. And you just think to yourself, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, just because your Achilles ruptures is not evidence that God does not exist. And built into that statement is this assumption more than likely, I'm kind of psychoanalyzing, that she's good, and if a good God exists, how could bad things happen to good people? And you make statements like that, people make statements like this all the time, it's not to pick on her, she's just a, a well-known person who makes all kinds of statements, but this is one of them, and you don't understand. You say that because you don't understand God. You don't understand who you are. Or I think about just what's happening in our country in defense of Hamas and terrorism. And we're not talking about a few people off in the corners of society. We're talking about Ivy League schools. We're talking about the educated people in society. We're talking about presidents. We're talking about groups of people, students at, at Ivy League schools who are defending utter terrorism the mauling and raping and torturing pillaging of innocent people why because at our core at the core our nature is corrupted it's corrupted by sin and so we don't understand God's truth Paul says this in Ephesians 4, they're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. Our hearts are hardened and therefore our understanding is darkened. Our minds have been dim. We don't compute the data as we ought to. We're blind to many truths. There's a deficiency. And so we sin. And the more we sin, the less capable we are of understanding. In fact, the author of Hebrews says, but encourage each other daily while it's still cold today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. The more you sin, the more deceived you are, and the more you're hardened to the things of God. You don't believe God. You don't want God. You turn away from God. And this is what Paul is saying. Your mind is corrupt. And then second, there is no one who seeks God. The motives. What do we truly want? What do we truly want as people if we're left to ourselves? Well, Paul says, you don't want God. What does he mean? 
Well, none of us really want to know God. We don't really want to enjoy God. We don't actually desire to worship God, to appreciate God, to rejoice in God. This is the point in Romans chapter one. He says, no one gives thanks to God. No one glorifies God as they ought to. They don't worship him. They worship other things, that we seek something other than God. Now you might be thinking to yourself, how can that be? How does that work? I know people who aren't Christians and they don't go to church where they pray or they're searching for truth. Uh, They want to know what's true. Or they're religious people, people in other religions. Aren't they seeking God? And maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, I sought God and I found God, so how how does this work? You know, Paul, he says in Acts chapter 17, from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. And he did this so they might seek God. And perhaps they might reach out and find him though he's not far from each one of us. What is Paul saying when he says no one seeks God? Is he saying no one seeks for spiritual blessings or no one seeks for God to answer their prayers or to have some spiritual experience? Well, no, obviously people do that stuff all the time, but no one prompted by their own decision and acting in their own ability wants to find God. We want the benefits of God, but people in themselves don't want God. And this is Paul's point. Paul's point here is that anyone who is truly seeking God is only seeking God because God has sought them. You're sitting here this morning and if you have sought God and you know God, it's not because of you, it's because of God. It's not that we don't respond to anything, that we don't, but the, the, the prompting, the initial who initiates it is not us. It's God. Jesus teaches this, John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him, or the Father who sent me draws him. Paul writes to Timothy, perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Who will lead them to the knowledge of the truth? Who grants repentance? God. How do you come to the Father? No one comes to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. That Paul is saying, In and of ourselves, we don't seek God. No person seeks God apart from God seeking them. And so Paul states, we don't understand. Our minds are corrupt and we don't seek God, our motives. Third, he says in verse 12, all have turned away. This speaks to the will of people, of individuals. And Paul says, you have all turned away. We willingly reject God. We willingly do our own thing. Now, we might not be aggressive about it. There's people who, they're aggressively against God. And there's people who are passively against God. But nonetheless, people rebel against God and his ways. That we demand to do our own thing. We might cover that with religion and say we're obeying God. But when we uncover what's actually going on, we're just using religion to justify the way that we want to live or whatever it might be. That we want to do our own thing. We want to follow our own path, not God's will for our life. And this is true of every one of us before Christ. I think back to my life and before following Jesus and I would say, you know, I, I believed in God. And, and uh, you know, at one point I, probably, I would have claimed claimed to be a Christian, but when I looked at my life, really my life was about me. I wanted to do me. I wanted to do what I wanted to do, and I just used God as cover to justify my life. It's the reality of all people, that we are rebellious people. As Isaiah 53 says, we all went astray like sheep. All have turned to our own way. We all do our own thing. 
And as a result, Paul writes in verse 12, all alike have become worthless. Because no one has stayed on the path to God, no one walks with God, we've become useless or worthless. And we're useless in the sense that we cannot fulfill our purpose as creatures made in the image of God. God has made us, he's created us with purpose, but because we have turned away from God, that our minds are corrupt and our wills are corrupt, that we've rejected God, we are useless to God in the fact that we cannot fulfill the purpose from which we've been created in the image of God. I'm just thinking about the idea of being useless. There's some images here, pictures of just useless things, like you look at the top, uh, the silverware. Can you imagine trying to cut a steak with that knife or trying to lift it with that fork? It's useless. It has rope. It's not solid. It can do nothing. It's not going to uh, fulfill your desire of what you're going to use it for. Or you think about ping pong paddle with a hole in it. It doesn't do much good when you swing and the ball goes through the hole. Or you're going to roll some dough and you have a rolling pin that's square. It is useless. It doesn't work. In our sin, we are corrupted. We are useless. We don't work the way we ought to. We become worthless because in our rebellion, we don't do what God has created us to do, which is to bring glory and honor to him. And the way in which we bring glory and honor to him is by living a life of obedience to him, by walking in his ways. But Paul says, you don't walk in the way of God, you reject God. And so lastly, in verse 12, Paul writes, as dealing with our character, there is no one who does what is good not even one, no one. And to make the point even clearer, there's no one who does what is good, not even one person does what is good. No one does what is good, Paul, no one. How can that be? I see people doing good things all the time. My neighbor, who's not a Christian, he regularly makes our family food, like homemade enchiladas, like good stuff. Or some of you are prob probably familiar with Mr. Beast. Mr. Beast here, YouTuber guy. He's made millions and millions of dollars off his videos on YouTube. Just built 100 wells in Africa. And we would look at that and we'd say, isn't that good? What do you mean, Paul, no one does what is good? Doesn't Jesus even recognize that we do good in Matthew chapter 7? He says in verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, you're evil, and you know how to give good gifts to your kids. How, how, Paul, does no one do what is good? Well, this begs a question. What is the definition of good? What does it mean to do good? In the truest sense, good, when we're looking at what is good in the eyes of God, good must not only conform to the command of God, but it must also be from a heart that is committed to honoring God, to glorifying God. I mean, Jesus says the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love is more than just simply doing the right thing. It's also doing the right thing with the right motive, the right reason for God. And as he carries on, for others. First Corinthians, Paul says, do everything to the, the glory of God to the honor of God, to exalt God, to make God famous, God known, not ourselves, that a good work is not only about the external action but also the internal motive. And even if people do good, we're not doing it consistently or habitually. We're not always doing the right thing for the right reasons. Even as Christians, that's true. Our internal world is so screwed up that in all reality, particularly apart from Christ, we're doing things to benefit ourselves when we get down to it. It's about 
us. That truly no one does what is good in the eyes of God apart from the work of Christ in their life. And so God's word, through his word, Paul gives proof that humanity is not righteous, that we are corrupt in character. Our minds, motives, wills are all under sin, under the power of sin. What Paul does here is he moves from our character then to our conduct, from our, uh, uh, the inside to the outside, to our actions and behaviors. And he starts by pointing to our tongue, our mouth, the throat, then to the tongue, to the lips, to the mouth. And he says, their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You know, what comes to your mind when you hear the throat described as an open grave? Open grave. Death. Decay. Rotting corpse. The idea then is what comes out of our mouths is like an odor from a grave. It produces death. Our sinful words of death and our evidence of our own decay, our own internal rot. Jesus says, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. They're evidence of our own internal corruption that we are under sin. And then he compares our speech to viper's venom, to a snake venom. Here's a picture here of a, a rattlesnake, which is a rattlesnake, which is a type of viper. You see his fangs coming down. And I'm guessing most of us don't spend a lot of time around snakes. Maybe some of you do, but most people seem to be scared of snakes and want nothing to do with snakes. Have you ever thought about what happens when a snake bites you? Like a rattlesnake bites you? What does it do? Well, this type of snake, uh, what, they, what happens is their venom attacks the circulatory system and it causes bleeding, interferes with the blood's ability to clot. In fact, when a rattlesnake uh, not only can cause horrible bleeding, but it uh, causes, uh, it's cytotoxic or which it breaks down tissues, it causes wounds and necrosis. Even some rattlesnakes venom are as neurotoxic. It makes you, it immobilizes its victim, turning its body kind of rigid or limp. I mean, imagine that happening. And Paul's saying that's what your lips are like. That's what your tongue is. It spits venom. It hurts people. immobilizes, has a negative impact on people's lives. See, we're deceitful, poisonous, bitter, cursing people in what we say. We use our tongues to lie to protect our own interest and to damage the reputation of others all the time, privately, publicly. Think about how often things come out of our mouth is, we're saying certain things to make ourselves look good and to cut other people down. And we cut other people down to make ourselves, in fact, look good. And we've all had this experience where we've been the one who's been spitting venom and the ones who have also been struck by it. And some of the deepest wounds in our life are not wounds, physical wounds. The deepest pain in your life is not when you got punched in the face. 
or beaten up. It's the things that have been said to you that scar the soul, that your identity has been wrapped up in. Things that parents or siblings or friends have said. And our words, our words, man, they can have massive consequences on somebody's life. My family is connected to a number of other families where there's a, a student, high school student in the Des Moines area who took his own life. And uh, it happened just a few weeks ago and, and hearing about this and, and knowing people, what was found on his phone was a bunch of text messages bullying him. And unfortunately, that's become all too common. You make fun of, pick on, cut people down, say horrible things. Man, nasty stuff to the point where somebody takes their own life. Our words are like vipers, venom. Our throats are like an open grave. Our mouths are evidence of our corruption. And Paul continues on, working his way from the head down now to the feet. In verse 15, and their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, in the path of peace they have not known. That one of the clearest places that man's sin is displayed is in, our, is in our rush to violence. We are so quick to be violent. We're so quick to fight. We're so quick to brawl one, with one another, to go after each other. I mean, it happens all the time. It's like you watch a sporting event, and it's like commonplace. You know, like hockey, yeah, you're, they're supposed to fight, but they're like getting rid of fighting in hockey. But the NBA, they just fight. The other night, watching the Golden State and Timberwolves. I mean, you got Dr Draymond Green putting whoever from the Timberwolves in a chokehold, like, on the floor. You're like, what is going on? But this is like humanity. It's just, this is like, like a microcosm, a picture of what happens all the time, all over, all over the place. The, the, the first really sin recorded in the Bible, apart from Adam and Eve, is murder. Cain takes the life of his own brother because he's jealous of him. We're jealous and envious and we become bitter and enraged and we go after people. We take their lives. We shed blood. Figuratively speaking and literally speaking, we shed blood. All over the place, blood is being shed. Out of vengeance, you've done something to me, I'm going to get you back. Because you're stopping me from having something I want approval of others, a relationship, a job, comfort, whatever it might be. I'm jealous of you, and so we get enraged when we go after people. And our violence, what Paul is speaking to here is our broken relationships, and our broken relationships speak to our depravity, that we are wretched, that we are wicked people full of sin. And it's not just in us, it comes out of us. And so Paul looks at our character, he looks at our conduct, then he looks here at the cause. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. What drives this behavior? Well, at least what Paul is saying here in part is there's no fear of God. There's no intrepidation. There's no sense of terror with God. Why? Because we don't see God accurately. 
People don't see God accurately, and how we see God impacts how we live before God. And because oftentimes we don't see God accurately, we don't deal with him accurately. We don't deal with him as God. Uh, picture here of a little grizzly bear, baby bear. You look at that bear, and if that bear is approaching you, you think, I think it looks kind of cuddly. Pick it up, pet it. Makes sense, this little bear offers no threat to your life. But what about the mama bear, who we know is not far behind? If that thing was coming at you, you wouldn't be so quick to be like, come here, bear. <laughs> Can I pet you? Unless you're crazy. You would think, how do I get away? There's a reason why when people go hiking in places where there's grizzly bears, they carry guns or they carry bear spray, like a full canister that shoots, because there's a threat. They see that that bear could threaten my life. And see, oftentimes we deal with God like the grizzly bear cub rather than the grizzly mama bear. That we look at God and we just think, <laughs> you're like a little bear cub. We don't take God seriously. We don't fear him. And yet what the scriptures say is there should be a terror in our soul when we think about God. It's not that God isn't loving and kind and compassionate. He surely is. But there's also a reality where God is just. He will carry out wrath. He is a consuming fire. The author of Hebrews writes. That Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians, he's talking about this day of judgment. He says this will take place in verse 7. At the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven with his powerful angels, when he takes vengeance, listen to this, when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus with flaming fire. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. God is a consuming fire. As the author of Hebrews says, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrifying thing. That God is all-powerful, almighty. He is totally righteous and just, and he will punish sin. And often, when we sin, even as Christians, when we sin, part of the reason we sin is because we don't see God accurately. There is not a fear of God in our soul. And so we don't worship him. We don't follow him. We don't live our lives submitted to him. And so Paul's proof about our corruption is God's word. And what is the conclusion about humanity? Well, Paul restates basically the idea he's already stated, verse three or verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says in speaking, it speaks to those who are subject to the law. The law here, the word of God, speaking to those who are subject to the law, well, particularly the Jew here, but then all of us. So every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. This is the point to which Paul has been driving towards relentlessly, moving towards this. All people, 
all inhabitants of all time without any exception are inexcusable before God. They have nothing to say. Under the accusation with no possibility of defense, what God's word does is it closes the mouth. What are you gonna say? Stand before God, God opens his word. This is what I demanded of you. This is how you live. What do you have to say? Paul says, every mouth is shut. And the whole world comes under the subject of God's judgment. Because who we are is that we are people who are radically corrupt, morally ruined at our very roots, totally depraved, guilty, and condemned. And Paul says in verse 20, for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. What does the law do? What does God's word do? Does it justify you? Does it make you righteous? Does it make you innocent before God? Certainly not, Paul says. There is nothing you can do to become righteous in God's sight. Doing more good things don't cancel out the bad things. And you've already done the bad things. Paul said what the law does, what God's word in part does, is it exposes with absolute clarity that we are sinful, that we are under the power enslavement of sin, that we are totally rotten and corrupted, depraved, spiritually dead, dead in our sin, and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves from the punishment for our sin, nothing, there's nothing. Paul says, you won't be justified by the law. The Jews are like, but we have the law. But Paul says, yeah, but the law just shows that you're a sinner. It doesn't change anything about what's true about you. It just exposes more clearly who you are. There's nothing you can do, never yourself, to escape the punishment, to change this reality that you are enslaved to sin. So what do we do? How do we escape the judgment that is coming toward our sin? Well, you have to come back next week. <laughs> next week, we're gonna get into the righteousness that comes apart from the law, Jesus Christ. That it's because of him, because he is God, became man, who lived in perfect obedience to the law, he was able to offer himself as an atonement to pay for your sin and my sin. And the glorious news of the gospel is to anyone who believes in the work of Christ, that he shed, that he came and he died to shed his blood to pay for our sin is forgiven, that his blood covers them, cleanses them, us, frees us from not only the judgment to come, but from the power that sin has on our life. The gospel and if you have not repented and put your faith in Christ, I would encourage you to turn to Jesus. He is the only solution, the only thing that can absolve you from the punishment for your sin, that can protect you from the wrath to come, that can set you free. In closing application, embrace this reality. When you work through this text and going through this, there's this sense of, soberness, heaviness. These are weighty truths, 
hard for some to hear. Now, if you're in Christ, there's, a, there's this reality where you know, thank God for you, Jesus, and what you've done for me here. But these are hard. These verses point to a hard reality about all of humanity. The, the playing field is leveled here. No one is better, Paul says. Nobody's better than somebody else. And our tendency is to evade hard things, to get around. Much of the inventions, right, in life, it's like to get around the difficulty in life. Like, we're trying to figure out how do we get, a, how do we get around difficulty. And it's easy to do that with this text, with the Word of God. Why? Because the culture is happy to tell you otherwise. To tell you that you're not that bad. You're actually not as bad as someone might say or the Bible might say. In fact, really, you're a victim. Life, the way of your life, it's not your fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's your parents. That's who gets blamed constantly. It's your parents' fault that you're this way. It's men's fault that you're this way. It's the patriarchy's fault that you're this way. It's the system's fault that you're this way. It's not your fault. Heaven forbid it would ever be, it's not your fault. There's all these other factors that have come into your life. It's not you. The world proclaims that you have clothes on. Life is good to go. You're, you're well off. And the Bible looks at you and Jesus says, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. You don't have clothes on. You're sinful. You are the problem. Where does evil come from? Here. Right here. You are responsible. And you will give an account. You will stand before God. I'm not saying that there aren't victims. I'm not saying there aren't things that have happened to you that are outside of your control. That's not the point. But it's not only that. There's a deeper reality, deeper truth. And we must embrace that reality. We must embrace the diagnosis of God's, God's diagnosis on our life. Otherwise, here's the problem. You won't embrace Christ. Not truly. We won't truly embrace Christ. We won't embrace Christ because the, the gospel, it's not attractive. It's not attractive. And if we don't embrace this truth, the gospel will not be attractive to us. It will not be attractive to others. People will not be led to the cross. Now, I might be thinking, well, that doesn't make sense. Telling people that they're, they're depraved and wicked, that they're going to be attracted to the gospel? Oh, yeah. The darker or the more you understand the depth of your sin, the more you understand just how dark and wicked you are, the more you understand how helpless you are, the more you want Christ. And we think oftentimes we smooth off the rough edges, you know, we kind of tone things down a little bit. I'm not justifying being crazy and malicious or mean about things. I'm just saying we need to be honest with people, with ourselves, about what the scripture says. And in doing so, the gospel becomes glorious. The gospel shines forth. The more we see our need for the cross, the more we want to cling to Christ. Because we see he is the one who has dealt with the problem that we cannot solve, our sinfulness. 
enslavement to sin, our guilt before God. And so we must not shy away from preaching and teaching what is true about humanity so that we might see the glorious truth of the gospel. There's a world, there's a world that does not know Christ. And what they need to hear is the bad news so that the good news is truly good and they embrace Christ. Let's pray, Father, we, we want...